Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Worked Up, Akerman's Employment Law Podcast. We're recording this episode from our Chicago office with United States Magistrate Judge Sidney Schenker from the Northern District of Illinois. Uh, Judge Schenker, thanks so much for being here today. Well, thanks for having me here, Matt. I'm really delighted to do this. And from my perspective also, last evening, uh, the judge and I uh, were at Wrigley Field watching the Cubs game. My first experience at Wrigley Field, and I cannot recommend it enough to all of our listeners. So just an unbelievable ballpark. Would you agree? Oh, it's, it's a fantastic part. And you've already endeared yourself to any Chicago listeners because you called it the Cubs game and not the A's game, uh, of course, as my of West course. Coast friends would do. Yeah. Well, what I was surprised about, I mean, first of all, it's a phenomenal looking stadium. Sold, it's a, it was a Monday night, random Monday night, sold out, every seat, standing room only crowd. And it had this feeling of like a great community and everybody was in it together. It's really, really awesome. I really enjoyed it. It is a terrific experience there. As lawyers, you know, we appear before uh, judges and so much of what we do, particularly as litigators, is based around our advocacy before uh, the bench. And it's always great to take a step back and get a sense for, you know, who these judges are, what their backgrounds and what, what led them to the bench. So tell everybody a little bit about yourself, your background, and then what led you to the bench. Sure. Well, um, my dad was a Holocaust survivor who came over after the war, and my mom was born in St. Louis, and they got married, and uh, he had me and my sister, and uh, they lived long enough to see their dream, you know, their son the lawyer, their daughter the doctor. Okay. So it worked, which was <laughs> Is pretty, she older or younger than she's you? She's six years younger. Okay. So, but, you know, it's the kind of thing where it was very meaningful to them because— Neither of them and really nobody in our immediate family circle had ever gone to college. So the wow. fact that I went to college and she went to college, that was kind of a big deal. Um, so went to college. I grew up in St. Louis, went to college at Northwestern in Chicago, uh, met my wife-to-be the second day of college. We got married after sophomore year, which showed I already had two qualities that have borne themselves out. One is that I have a good uh, capability of persuasion, since I persuaded her to marry me. Pretty quickly. Yes. And the second is I'm decisive. I decided she was the one, and (laughs) there was no looking back. And, you know, 44 years later, uh, that uh, proved to be a very good choice. But that also is what really led me to law, because I was a journalism major, and I was going to be, you know, a sports writer and... Uh, yeah, you know your stuff. I can. Yeah, well, I, it's a passion. I still love it, but uh, I, that's what I was going to do. But we were married, and she was going to go to law school. And if I'm graduating from journalism school in 1976, you know, where are you going to get a job? Not where she was going to go to law school. So I'm thinking, what the heck am I going to do? And I said, well, it's 1976. Lawyers are pretty cool. You know, they saved the nation, Watergate, all of that. So what the heck? I'll go to law school. Indeed. Still and, it, and, it, and it worked out. Uh, pretty well. And so you were in private practice for some point. I was. I clerked for a year out of uh, law school. I taught for a year at University of Chicago uh, as a fellow in uh, legal writing and argument. And then I went to Jenner and Block and practiced there for uh, more than 17 years. And I I know you you did a bunch of things at Jenner and Block, but primarily you were a labor and employment lawyer? Well, it kind of ebbed and flowed. and, And one of the things that I really wanted to do was to be a generalist. And uh, today, I think that's very difficult uh, for all sorts of reasons. But uh, when I went to Jenner, it turned out to be possible. And so I did trial work and appeal work. I had uh, 
arguments in the Seventh Circuit, Illinois Appellate Courts, Illinois Supreme Court. I had three cases in the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, wide variety of civil and criminal matters that I did. Uh, a lot of employment law matters, but also patent cases, trademark cases, uh, large commercial disputes. So it was really a terrific practice. At a certain point after being in private practice for, as you said, roughly... Close to seven, well, a little over 17 years. 17 years. You decided that you wanted to uh, become a judge. So how did you, uh, how'd you make that decision? Well, you know, I had clerked for a judge, uh, and it was just a phenomenal, phenomenal experience. Uh, Marv Aspen was uh, the judge that I clerked for, my mentor. I think a spectacular judge and an even better human being. And I just saw in that year that I worked for him, the things that you were able to achieve as a judge in terms of resolving disputes that people had through the litigation process, but also resolving disputes through settlement process, and the ability to touch so many different cases and influence so many different lives, that was very appealing to me. Uh, probably not surprisingly, since I was like being a generalist, and you get a little bit of that as well. Um, but I really enjoyed the practice, but I also reached a point where I felt like I had lived enough and done enough different things in the practice that I could feel you know, comfortable having the responsibility of being a judge and making the decisions you have to make as a judge. Did, was there any aspect of the job that gave you real pause? Of being a judge? Yeah. Um, you know, I have to say no. Uh, I think earlier in my career, if I had thought about doing that when I was five years, 10 years out, I may have been more concerned about making decisions. And I think when you're a judge when you're young, and I was pretty young when I became a judge, I was 43, um, there is a risk that in order to show your mettle, you kind of come on harder than you, you need to come on. And I think that would be even more the case if you're much younger as a judge because you're not as leavened by life experience. You might or might not be reading my facial expression because I might or might not be 43 years old. And I might or not, might not be not, uh, in that same <laughs> boat of unable to make some decisions. But um, I, think that, I think that's very well put. I mean, it, it, there, there, I'm sure there are elements where, you know, cases can weigh on you. But if you're confident in your judgment and discretion, yeah. um, do you take cases home with you? Does that ever become a problem? I, I or is would it like say, everyone else who takes work home with them? And Well, you know, I don't take cases home with me in the way that I did as an attorney. Mm -hmm. uh, because for whatever reason, that was different. You know, as an attorney, there's a lot of it that's harder than being a judge because you have so many different variables that you're dealing with. You know, my client, how am I going to deal with this client? My witness, how am I going to manage this witness? The other side, how am I going to deal with the other side? The judge, my gosh, how am I going to deal with this guy? Uh, you know, Don't get so, me started about the yeah. judges. Uh, so, you know, there's all of those things that are you're kind of assessing at every step. When you become a judge, almost all of that falls away. And all you have to do is what you think is right. Therein lies the difficulty in some measure of cases, because in a lot of cases, it's not that hard, at least I don't think, to come to what is a reasonable conclusion. But there are cases where it's really tough. And those are cases sometimes you, you really do think about. Uh, 
It's not like I think about them over dinner so I can't talk to my wife, but if I wake up in the morning at 3, that's what I'm thinking about. <laughs> Uh, and now you've, you've been on the bench for in the Northern District of Illinois. It'll for, be 21 years in October. And and during that time, uh, you've also done some very interesting and I think I'm sure fulfilling and impactful initiatives uh, outside of the bench. So speak a little bit about that. Well, sure. One of the things that I didn't really appreciate before I came onto the bench were the opportunities you have uh, to do things outside the chambers and the courtroom. Uh, so... Within the court, you know, I'm on various committees, you know, I was on the rules committee when I was the presiding magistrate judge, I was on the executive committee. Um, but uh, we have a reentry court where we work with people coming off of federal prison sentences for more intense supervision to try to prevent recidivism and to try to get them through their supervised release and, you know, launched uh, back into being productive members of society. Uh, and I did a fair amount of criminal defense, almost all pro bono, uh, and I really find that to be a very valuable thing to do and very rewarding thing to do. Tough stuff because recidivism, recidivism rates are high for a reason, a lot of reasons actually, and we take people who are at higher risk of that. Uh, so you have to be willing in order to achieve the successes that you get to endure the ones that don't succeed and not get defeated by it. But it's a very rewarding thing to do. And I think for all of the people who have participated, it's meaningful that you got this bunch of judges and there's four of us involved, uh, prosecutors, defense attorneys, probation officers, a substance abuse counselor. We've got some social work interns from a college nearby that all of these people are really working to try to help them uh, because that's typically not the view of the system that the people have coming out of prison. And, and even if they stumble, even if they fall, even if there are difficulties, and many of them have very serious difficulties, whether they're drug addiction or some mental health issues, uh, the fact that there are people who care makes a difference makes a difference to them and it's a very rewarding thing to see yeah and and from everything I, I I've read about all the all the reentry work yeah you've done and it's hands-on work so you can advocate for legislative changes and there are a lot of hugely important ways to attack that problem but it sounds like um, what the programs that you've been participated in are really getting involved with real people on the ground and having a it's significant down in the impact. trenches down in the trenches. Now, you also teach, right, yes, the up-and-coming yes. lawyers. So tell me a little bit about your— uh... So I, I've taught at Northwestern Law School in town for a little over 30 years. For about the first 20, I did pretty much exclusively trial practice. Uh, but in the last 14 years or so, 15 years, uh, I put together a civil discovery seminar that we do in the spring where it gives— the students an opportunity really to start to get experience in what lawyers do in the litigation process, in the discovery process, every day. Uh, drafting discovery requests, drafting responses, case planning, case theory, uh, privilege logs, everybody's favorite, uh, <laughs> you know, doing depositions. Uh, and being critiqued by experienced lawyers and judges uh, so that when they go out into the practice world, they actually have some sense of how these 
things operate, which I certainly did not when I started. It's, it's, it, I'm, I'm sure that it's very helpful to hear from a, from a judge in law school, not to denigrate law professors. They teach a lot of critical thinking, but I'm sure you provide practical anecdotal experience from what you see in the sure. courtroom, good and bad. Well, you know, law school, I think, I I liked law school. I loved it. I mean, I'll make, it's a confession. I don't know if that's an admission against interest (laughs) or or what, but I liked law school. And I liked the the pedagogical process. I liked the, you know, work in terms of, as they say, think like a lawyer and the critical thinking, which is really essential as one of the tools of a lawyer, but it is by no means the sole tool of a lawyer. And when I went to law school, I don't think that there was a lot of emphasis on the other things, uh, what I'll call emotional intelligence, how to read situations, you know, which you get from the practicums, uh, whether it's a trial practice or a clinical experience or a seminar uh, like this. And one of the things that I try to tell the students is, you know, you guys are really, really smart. You wouldn't be here if you're not. So nobody doubts your ability to think complicated thoughts. Most problems, including most legal problems, often have a very simple solution. Therefore, don't overthink it. I always say that my, I work in ascending levels of complexity. I start with what's the easiest resolution. And if that doesn't work, I can always move to more complex levels of thought or solution. But let's not ignore what can be a very easy solution. That's good life advice, in addition to advocacy advice. Well, I hope so. (laughs) Uh, One other unique fact that I did uh, read about you, and I didn't prep you for this, but it appears that you have a photographic memory. Is that that true? Um, You know, it's hard for me to judge. I guess I would let others judge that. Those who say it may be uh, gilding the lily a little bit. I, I, I Certainly in my younger days, I had an exceptionally good memory, an exceptional visual memory. These days, I think um, I need a little more RAM access to the memory you know, than I used to because uh, yeah. I think there's more things floating around there. <laughs> I have a strange... I, I can oddly remember telephone numbers from 15 or 20 years ago, but if you tell me a phone number right now, if I don't write it down, it's gone 10 seconds later. I've always had this strange... Some memories are... Is a, is a strange thing. But I, I, I assume that helps also to some degree on the bench as you can remember or draw on certain details. That No, I, I think that that's true. And, and it helps when you deal with a lot of papers because a lot of times one aspect of my memory is that I can often remember seeing where something was on a page. So I can get to that page because I have this visual memory of it. Yeah. So based upon your uh, years on the bench... Do you have a sense for whether, and we'll talk a lot about best practices and mm-hmm. employment law specifically, but do you have a sense for whether advocacy has changed or litigators have changed over the past you know, several years? Yeah, that that's a tough one. I, I don't know. Let me measure it in this way. In terms of what we often think about, the the bruising nature of litigation, disputes and discovery, things of that character. Do people seem more contentious to you? They seem a little more contentious to me. I guess if I looked at my range of cases, and when I would start it out, I would say, you know, 10% of the cases give me 90% of the headaches. 
All right, because in those 10% of the cases, it's pitched warfare over what day it is. Did the sun rise in the east? I'm not so sure. Prove it. <laughs> um, but in the, the other cases, people dealt with each other. They got along. Did they have some problems? Yes, but nobody got over the top about it. And I would say that today, I don't think that that ratio is materially different. If it is, it's only at the margins. But I do think that in the cases where there are those problems, there's a lot more heat than maybe there was at one time. Um, to the what extent, would you attribute that to? I, I, I agree. I, I don't know if it's the economic pressures of mm-hmm. practice. I don't know if they're pressures from clients. Uh, because, you know, when you sit as a judge, you never know for sure why somebody is acting in the way he or she acts. Is it because they're just surly people and that's their DNA? They like to fight? Or are they doing this because that's what the client wants them to do? Are they doing this because that's what they think the client wants them to do? Are they doing it as a defense mechanism because of what they see the other side doing? So it's, you know, hard to know sometimes, you know, what the motivation is. Um, But I think that the economic pressures probably have something to do with it. You could speak to this better than I can, but it seems to me from what I see, and particularly in the settlement setting, I don't think that the client-attorney relationships are as durable as they were certainly when I started in practice, and I would say even maybe when I left the practice. So I think that there's a lot more pressure on the attorneys because if I do something that I think the the client thinks is a misstep, even if I do everything perfectly but it turns out badly, they'll go to somebody else. Mm -hmm. And that creates a lot of pressure. Um, It may be that there's pressure, especially on younger mid-level people, because the track to an equity partnership, if that's what they're shooting for, is much more difficult frankly, than I think it was when I started. I mean, when I started, it was six and a half years to equity partnership. I got two years credit for clerking and teaching. And so I was you know, an equity partner after six and a half years. I don't think that happens. Mm-hmm. And so okay. there's a lot more pressure if that's the brass ring you're grabbing for. Uh, and so I think that those all can contribute to the process. And I think that some level maybe to people's enjoyment of the practice. I, that, that's, that's what I worry about is, and I, and I think you're right. There are pressures on, on litigators and listen, my, my clients know I can be aggressive and I can be a pit bull if, if, if you need me to, but I think litigation is better served writ large if make thoughtful, compelling arguments. But sometimes when there are all these fights back and forth with adversaries, it doesn't help us. It doesn't help our clients. I assume it doesn't curry favor with courts. So I wish we can all just get on the same page and try to <laughs> try to curb it a little bit. No, no, I agree with you. I think it's kind of faux toughness. Right. Um, uh, to me, you're showing your strength and you're showing your confidence when you know what's important and when you know what's worth fighting about. And every molehill is not worth fighting about. Mm-hmm. 
And, and I think the, the better lawyers know when they can compromise because they understand their case. They understand what's important. And, and the better lawyers also understand that at some point in the process, it is very likely that they will sit down and try to negotiate. And you're in a much better world to try to negotiate if you have some good working relationship with the other attorney than if all you've done is torch each other. You know, it, then, you know, you're starting from a much more difficult place to try to shift into a mode where, let's see if we can resolve this. Now, you've, you've shared with me some, let's say, unique approaches that you've taken from the bench to aid in the process of litigators getting along. Speak a little bit about uh, some case in particular that jump out at you where you took some unique measures in that regard. Well, I'll give you two examples. Uh, first one, not. It's a leading question. I know. It is. I know the That's answer, all right. But the- <laughs> you know the, but you don't know. You don't know the don't answer to the one I'm going to tell you, okay. and that is that. You know, lawyers often fight with each other about, as I've kind of suggested, things that don't matter. So I'll have sometimes, especially a young attorney who's not confident, will say. I object to the other side getting an additional five days to file a reply on a summary judgment when there's nothing else set thereafter. This is not going to hold up the progress of the universe or the case. So I'll look at the attorney who's objecting and I say, so uh, can you tell me that you're prejudiced by this? And they'll say, no. So you just think he shouldn't get it because he should have been able to get his stuff together. Right. So, okay, I'll make a deal with you. If you're willing to live by the standard that you want me to hold him to, I'll do it. But you have to understand the day will come when you will need that additional time and you will need a little love. Are you willing to have some judge say no because this is a world that you're creating? Mm-hmm. So that usually gets them to drop the objection. Yep. Um, so, but the other was, I've only done it in one case. I had this really nasty discovery dispute, and each side thought that it would be very persuasive to attach a raft of emails to the motion and response, which said the most incendiary things about each other. And in some instances, about their families, and maybe the dog, too. I don't even remember now. But it, they were terrible. They were terrible. Um, and so sometimes when people do that, you know, I'll say, well, is that really what you went to law school to do, to write emails like this? I don't think so. But here I thought they needed a little stronger medicine. And so I had noticed the time on each email. And all of the worst emails were after midnight. So I, in that case, implemented an order that they could not communicate with each other by email between 11 p.m. and 7 a.m. That's fantastic. So I said, on a good night's sleep, maybe you'll treat each other a little bit better. Did it help? Um, you know, it did. It, it, it did. It did help. And I did a few other things in the case, and which they didn't like. But they wound up down the road settling the case. And to their great credit, They came and saw me afterwards, and they said, you know, when you did those things that day, we hated you. (laughs) But you were right, 
because it made us really appeal to our better selves. And we wound up developing a different relationship and we settled the case. Yeah, sometimes we, when I say we as litigants, as much as I hope people operate on both sides in, in good faith and with courtesy and professionalism, sometimes you just find yourself in one of those fights and you need a little clarity that it's not it's not advancing the interests of your client. It's not advancing the the process. So I'm sure they meant what they said that they did appreciate in hindsight what you did. But you're you're a big proponent of of settlement and mediation. I know you and I have talked about it. Yes. Um, talk a little bit about your philosophy about uh, resolving cases and the in your mind uh, the best way to go about a principled and hopefully successful negotiation. Well, uh, first of all, I'm a big proponent of it because. You know, once you fire the starting gun of a lawsuit, the case goes away only in one of two ways. It either goes away because of some ruling by a judge or a jury, or it goes away because you, people resolve it. And one of the things I try to sell to people is that when you resolve it, you control the outcome. You know, mutually, through negotiation, nobody all by himself or herself, you control it. When you let the litigation process do that, what you do is you give up control and you place the resolution of your disagreement into the hands of free agents, you know, who are never going to know as much as you do, who aren't there to do what you can do to resolve a case. You know, it's binary. You win, you lose. You know, I like to joke, you know, it's a good system, better than the old days, dueling at 20 paces, not so good. You know, good theater, but not so good. Right, right. But, you know, so I'm a big proponent that this allows the parties really to do what maybe if you could wind it all back, they should have done in the first place, which is before there was ever a suit, do the way we usually do things. We try to handle our own stuff. We get things settled. We get things resolved. We don't usually go to third parties. So I really try to sell people on the virtue of that control. You know, how do you get there? And that can be a simple process, and it can be a complicated process. And it often has very little to do with the amount and issue. There are cases that are large dollar cases that actually settle relatively simply because everybody sees the issues, the risk. And there are cases that are ridiculously small dollar, but there's all this emotion and people get irrational. So part of the settlement process is to try to get people to look at their disputes, uh, not as an emotional matter, not as a fight, but even in an employment setting or even in a personal injury setting, really looking at it as a, you could call it a business resolution, or maybe in a personal injury setting, people don't like that, but you say an economic resolution. You know, this is, this is simply about how do we resolve this in the most reasonable, effective way so that you don't have to go through this whole litigation free agent process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, you know, it's always interesting, always a challenge, you know, to kind of read the personalities and, and figure out what the keys are to try to motivate people. So yeah. And you're, you're reading relationships on, on both sides of the V, right? So you're seeing relationships among the litigants 
And then you're seeing interesting dynamics between the litigants and, and their own clients. Oh, yes. Um, any, uh, we have outside counsel and in-house counsel list this podcast. So sure. any global advice you would have, um, let's say for uh, people on the same side of the V to work together towards crafting what you think would be a beneficial resolution of a case? Well, I, I think that first of all, it is... There's a reason that lawyers have different titles. Lawyers are advocates, uh, but lawyers are also counselors. And one of the traits that a lawyer needs to tap into in the settlement process, in the pre-settlement process, is that role as a counselor. And so sometimes that means that the lawyer has to go to Matt, the client, and say, you know, Matt, I know you're really feeling bent out of shape about this. I know you felt that wrong was done to you. But here are some of the difficulties we're going to have in proving this. And we have to take those into account in the positions we take. Uh, because otherwise, we're going to stake out a position that's going to make this case unsettleable. And then it doesn't then go away. Then we litigate it, and you got a big risk here. Yeah. But... It's not hard to see when that conversation has not occurred. <laughs> um, and it's easy to see when it has occurred because you can kind of see the client nodding a little bit because, you know, she's heard it before, you know, from the lawyer. You can see sometimes the lawyer sitting to the side saying, I want to stay away from the splatter here, you know, because I don't want to get involved in this. You you have at the guy judge. That's fine. Yeah, we weaponize uh, the judges sometimes. And- but, uh, but I accept that that's part of sometimes what's needed because, as we talked about earlier, I think that not all attorney-client relationships are these solid, enduring things. And sometimes people are walking on eggshells a little bit. And so... You know, you wish it weren't that way, but you accept that that's the reality of it, and you accept that sometimes you have to play a role that uh, maybe you wish you didn't have to play to the extent you do, but but that's fine. If called upon, I can do that. By the time a case gets to you, the proverbial egg's already scrambled. Yes. Um, in, in, in your role as a federal judge, You've seen, oh, I don't know, you have a photographic memory, maybe you know, but countless employment cases over the years in various... 749. (laughs) Is that right? No. Okay. I believed you for that. Um, Say with confidence. I used to referee basketball when I was in high school. They said, just call with confidence. That's all that that matters. I umpired. Confidence. That's all. Um, So you've seen discrimination cases, harassment cases, retaliation cases. We can't Mm -hmm. unpack each discipline separately, but... Collectively, from your vantage point as a judge, seeing these cases in litigation, what are some best practices that employers can implement that would make their version of the facts when they come to you likely to be more persuasive? And I guess conversely, what are some things that you see that an employer is alleged to have done or has done, which really will taint their credibility Mm -hmm. in your eyes? Um. You know, I think that for employers, uh, having very sound personnel policies uh, is really a critical thing. Uh, I know that there are employers, I know this from when I practiced, 
I know it as a judge, who say, this is a pain. Why do we have to go through all these hoops to do these things? But I really think it is critical in part to give the employer protection, that you have a policy that it lays out what the rules are, what the expectations are. But that's only part of the equation because sometimes people put together this really gold-plated policy and they put it up on the shelf and nobody pays any attention to it. And so what is worse, I think, than having no policy is have a policy and not to follow it. Because either way, there can be a sense that the decision being made is arbitrary. But when you have a policy and then you don't follow it, it looks more intentional than arbitrary. And I think that in terms of certainly what I see with juries, um, and I think that this is something that employers really need to understand. Most jurors, if you believe you know, public opinion polls, could not cite to you what the due process clause says. <clears throat> but they each have an idea of due process. Small d, small mm -hmm. p. And that idea is fundamental fairness. And if you have a policy and you don't follow it, that's not fundamentally fair. If you don't have a policy and somebody complains about Matt and you do an investigation, Matt has no idea what's going on, then you come to Matt and say, we've done the investigation, Matt, you're out of here. Matt says, well, wait a minute. I didn't get to tell my side of the story. That's not fundamentally fair. Those are things that are really uh, nitroglycerin with a jury. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that employers often either don't appreciate or have averted their eyes to. So part of the settlement process is to make sure that they look at that very clearly. Right. And whether because or not there's some legal right to be treated fairly, that's what jurors expect to see. I exactly. Agree. Exactly. You know, I think another thing in terms of best practices is to really put yourself in the shoes of the employee. Say, you know, if I were in that person's shoes, what would I think? How would I feel? Uh, and what can I do to address those things. So part of it is to treat the person with dignity. Uh, I, I have, I've had cases where a lot of the problem is that after the person is fired, they go, they say, clear out your desk. They got the security guard there, and they're basically making the guy do the perp walk out of the building. Well, guess how that guy feels, and guess how that lawsuit looks, and guess how tough that is then, to get past the emotion. So part of that is to put yourself in those positions. And, you know, one of the things that I talked uh, to some employers about when I practiced, because I did some traditional NLRA, I remember I had this guy said, yes, Sid, they want to organize a union. I said, Bob, why? What do they want? So he started ticking off a few things. I said, well, 
You think that maybe if you gave them some of those things, they might decide they don't need one? Oh. <laughs> and in fact, they did. And in fact, they never unionized. Yeah. Because the employees got treated the way they thought was fair without doing that. Fairness and dignity. Uh, without, without getting into any specific cases, obviously over the past few years, mm-hmm. um, employment law has been front and center. And there have been a lot of prominent, highly publicized harassment and other lawsuits. Uh, as a consequence, have, have you noticed any shift in the way in which either the frequency with which they're brought the manner by which they're litigated. Has litigating employment law claims changed in, in any meaningful way from your perspective over the past few years? I, I would say not in the way that they're litigated. I mean, they're subject to some of the same things we've talked about as part of the contentiousness sometimes of the litigation process. Um, I think that, you know, in some respects— the 2015 rules changes, especially kind of confining what is discoverable not only to what is relevant to a claim or defense, but also in light of the, you know, proportionality considerations. Yeah, that's on my outline for later. It has yeah. given judges more tools, not that they didn't exist before, but they've kind of emphasized them, collected them in one spot, made them more front and center. Uh, that allow a judge, I think, more readily to exercise some control over what otherwise, you know, might be perceived as excesses. Now, it still requires, you know, a defendant to do its job, which is to explain why it's not proportional, to explain these things. And sometimes you kind of get uh, more of a lick and a promise on that than than substance. But yeah. I think that we're moving more in that direction. I, I think where you see some of the impact perhaps of that is in the settlement process because I think that for maybe a whole host of reasons, uh, employers, I think, are increasingly risk-averse in some of these cases, and some of it may be uh, prominent verdicts, which also, on the other hand, um, are things that the plaintiffs have in their gaze. Uh, I think some of it is that issue about lack of confidence over the solidity of a relationship. And and I think some of it is also, um, you know, my opinion, But uh, the fact that we don't try many cases, and I think a lot of lawyers, uh, they may pound their chest, they may talk about all these things, but they're really concerned about how they talk to a jury because they don't do it very much, (laughs) and they don't have confidence in their ability to talk to a jury, or maybe they don't have confidence that their key witness is going to sell well to the jury, and so I think all of those factor in to, you know, the settlement process more than the litigation process itself. Yeah. Well, I want to turn back to the discovery in a a minute. But from your vantage point, like looking at jurors in the eye from a neutral perspective, and this may be a hard question to answer, so you can certainly tell me that you don't really have an opinion on it. But do you think employment-related claims are more likely to resonate with jurors today than they might have two or three years ago when people weren't talking as much about 
Me Too and other publicized cases? Like, did, I guess what I'm trying to get at, do you think that the public looks at them differently? You know, at least in terms of the juries, I, I haven't seen that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the city of Chicago, there's a lot of publicity about police community relations, excessive force cases. Of course. Yeah. And so there's some thought, well, you know, this is a great time for a plaintiff in a police case to try a case against the city of Chicago and the police. There's a lot of defense verdicts in those cases. Um, in the end, I think it still is the evidence. Does the evidence sell? And I think in employment cases, um, you know, historically, the plaintiff's success rate, even on cases that make it through summary judgment, but they get to trial, is very low. And, you know, I've always thought that part of the reason for that is what we ask juries to do in those cases is more than what we ask, say, in a personal injury case. You know, if I am all of a sudden having a brain cramp and I rear-end Matt's car, you know, a jury may say, well, gee, he was negligent. Doesn't mean he's a bad guy, you know. It could have been me. In an employment discrimination case, when the issue is, did I do this thing to the plaintiff? because of his race, because of his age, because of his gender, because of his national origin, because of his age, you're really asking to say the jury to find that the person had a bad intent. And that's a harder thing than simply, I goofed. And, and so I think the burdens of proof are the same, but I think the thought process in getting there is different than it is in a garden variety contractor negligence case. Well, let's come back to the evidence part. This may bore some people, but it's something that I'm curious to get your perspective on. So for those listeners who aren't as familiar with the litigation process, and this is a vast oversimplification, but litigants have a right to ask the other side before a trial to produce documents and provide answers to written questions so that each side can get to learn a little bit about the other's position so you can effectively litigate it. And in, I believe, 2015, uh, federal courts uh, put into place a new rule which would limit the scope of that exchange to what, and again, this is an oversimplification, is proportional to the facts of the case. What employment lawyers, and this, this is where I want your opinion, what, what, I, what I worry about, if you have a commercial transaction that's being litigated, there's the transaction, and there's like some circle around it where you can have relevant discoverable evidence, but it's fairly circumscribed. In an employment case, even if it's one employee arguing, for example, discrimination, it's there are documents that are certainly pertinent to that claim. But what I find, and maybe this is me being cynical in my own right, is that adversaries will start asking for information, particularly for big larger companies, I want information about all these other employees. And there's at least an intellectually honest way to ask for that information because you want to see how other employees were treated. And what that does, it makes it very hard to control expenses on a case without motion practice and, and you know judicial intervention. So from the perspective of a, of a litigant, if you feel as if, uh, and in fairness, it can, it can go it can go both ways, but an employment case, I think, is is uniquely susceptible to overreaching 
if you have a company with a lot of employees. Uh, what's the most effective way for a you know a thoughtful defense lawyer or a plaintiff's lawyer to try to resolve those either without having to come to you or before you? Because mm-hmm. I think that, we see that a lot on the bench, and it's hard in employment cases. Because sometimes they're not worth them. The claims, and then I'll let, I'll let you answer. Sometimes the amount at issue isn't all that great, and you feel good about your defenses, but you have a conversation with your client that, listen, Cindy's an aggressive lawyer. and ask for all this discovery. It's going to cost you multiples to pay me to review that information. Let's just settle the case with the plaintiff. And some companies are susceptible to that. Others aren't. But how do you how do you manage that on the outside? And how do you, when those disputes come to you, what do you like to see from your perspective? Well, it seems to me that on the outside, um, the first element here is for the defendant. I'm going to use that model. Of course. Yep. <clears throat> Because in, in many of the employment cases, at least if we're not going to get into the world of texting and, and all of that, you know, there's an imbalance of material. You know, defense is going to have a lot more than the plaintiff. So that, in fact, that's why we have so many of these rules changes to try to address that imbalance, frankly. But the first thing is to figure out what the claim is. You know, what are the elements of the claim? What defenses are you raising? And then to think about what are the types of information that would reasonably be relevant to that. And then where is it that I'm going to be most likely within the organization to find this? Uh, and what time frame is important? To, so that when you go to have the required planning conference with the other side, you can speak other than in the air. You can say, look, uh, we've looked into this. This is the claim. You know, we understand you might want this, you might want that. We think that these people are the relevant supervisors who may have had some involvement here. Uh, here's the time frame. And have a discussion with the other side where you engage them, right, in uh, talking about, well, he may say, I think that... Um, I want to explore whether these 75 people were comparable. Well, okay, let's talk about that. But, you know, what makes them comparable? And if we're dealing in different locations or we're dealing with different supervisors, oftentimes under certainly Seventh Circuit case law, they're not going to be comparable unless you're talking about an employment action that may not vary among supervisors. It's not a matter of the judgment of somebody's quality of work if it's something like stealing. Um, so you have that dialogue and hopefully if you have on the other side a willing uh, partner uh, in the litigation to negotiate with to try to do that um, you can make some progress and that's true with respect to the electronically stored information as well those are better things addressed in that planning conference or certainly before any searches are done Mm -hmm. Then after, I mean, and that's what the rules really try to drive you toward. But I, I had a case that came in yesterday, and they've got a dispute. The plaintiff said, well, you know, I don't know if they gave me the right things because I don't know what custodians they searched. I don't know what search terms they used. I don't know what time frame they used. And I said, well, anybody ever talk about that? Anybody ever engage on that? Well, no. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's, it makes it more difficult once the horse is out of the barn. But then, you know, 
certainly the way of the world is you may not, on the other side, have somebody uh, who is going to be reasonable, or a plaintiff may not have somebody that's going to be reasonable on the other side. But then at least you've created a framework to go to the court when the court is setting a schedule and talking about parameters of discovery, where whoever has been reasonable is going to have the leg up. Reasonableness sells. Mm -hmm. Okay, If I have a choice between a reasonable position and one that seems to me to be pushing the envelope or bursting through the envelope, you know, reasonableness is going to win. Uh, but I think that's reality. But I think that the discussion in the origin between the lawyers before you get to the judge is critical to set that up. What makes for uh, an effective advocate in the courtroom and which advocacy skills in the courtroom are replicable in other phases of life? Let's say for the people who are listeners who aren't litigators, mm -hmm. but who just have to persuade in some other way sure. their respective workplaces. You know, we all have different gifts. Um, like, I've never thought that I have a very good speaking voice. You know, I, I remember I being I remember being a young attorney and listening to this one guy in particular that had this mellifluous voice. I said, man, I wish I had that voice. You know, and there are some people that are incredibly, you know, good in the theatrics. And I'm not talking about an over-the-top way, but in, in playing the room. Um, and everybody's got different strengths, weaknesses. The one thing that is the great equalizer that is not a matter of any natural gift you have is preparation. All that takes is the willingness to put in the time, to do the work, to master the information, uh, and that's what makes you persuasive in the end. If you know your case, your evidence inside and out, you know what your goal is, you know what your target is, you will inevitably speak with authority, which is key to advocacy. You will speak with confidence, which is key to advocacy. And you will speak with persuasiveness. So I, I think that the first thing is preparation. Now, you know, preparation that is an unguided missile doesn't help. So part of preparation, again, is really understanding what your case is about and understanding what your other side's case is about because they get to shoot back at you. So you got to understand both of them. And so uh, you take all of that preparation and that evidence and you fit it into the framework of what your case is. Uh, and that's part of preparation, too, to present a very clear, tight theme, if you're talking about the trial. On a particular motion, uh, again, uh, I'm sure if you ask about me, they'll say, he's fair, but he's not always patient. And that's probably that fair. I, and that probably is fair because I, I expect a lot of attorneys. I, I expect that when they come in, they know their stuff. I should not know what's in Exhibit C to their motion better than they know 
what's in exhibit C. Can you tell right away if somebody before you is less than yes. prepared? Yes. And, and so when you ask a question, there, there's these little dodges. Uh, one is if you ask the question, and what you often get is not the answer, but you get the explanation for the bad answer that they were going to give you. But they're kind of laying the mattress for the bad explanation. And I would say, I, can you give me the answer so I have the context? Um, and so when I was a young judge, I probably wasn't as kind about it. But now I, I have a little shtick, if I can tell you. Of course. So I joke. I said, you know, I noticed that for the third time you didn't answer my question. So I want you to know what I think when you don't answer my question. I think, oh, man, he thinks that if he answers that question, he's cooked. He's lost. So... I just want you to understand that that's what I'm thinking when you don't answer the question. So maybe you should consider whether you're better off answering the question and having me think that. Right. And then I get an answer, you know. So, um, but I think another thing to advocacy is to answer the judge's questions. Because when you're in court, we're not in moot court land in law school anymore. I've never asked a question out of idle curiosity. You know, I've never asked a question just for some ulterior motive. I mean, I'm asking a question because I'm trying to get information. I'm testing various points in an argument. And so it's gathering the information that I think is important to help me rule. So answer the question, and then if you think that that question isn't really getting good information, you can say, well, here's the answer, Judge, but here's why something else I think is something for you to really focus on, or this puts that other point into context. But answer the question, because then it doesn't look like you're dodging. Right. It doesn't look like you're dodging. And don't surrender your credibility. Don't ever surrender your credibility. There is no client who is worth your credibility. And you can see when people are edging a little bit toward it. So I'll ask a question and it'll be, well, I'm given to understand that. Whenever an answer starts out with all that many words. Not good. <laughs> and so I'll say stop. Because if you answer the question that way, I'm going to ask you, okay, who gave it to you to understand and all of that? And I'm not trying to put you in a trick bag. I'm not trying to get you to tell me what you don't know. If you don't know, then you don't know. Should you know? Okay, we can discuss that. But be honest with the court. Be honest with the court. It's really been great having you. We appreciate your insight. I'm sure the listeners really um, benefited in, in countless ways and hope you enjoyed it. Well, I very much did. Thanks, thanks again for having me. I'll be back at Wrigley soon. I hope so. <laughs> All right. Take care. Thank take, you. Thanks, Matt.